Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. It's always an honor to be here uh, to preach. Uh, I'm so privileged to get to do what I do to work uh, with this faculty, uh, friends uh, and heroes uh, on this faculty, including uh, Dr. Aiken. My wife did graduate from here. I know some of you are looking for a spouse while you're here. Uh, happy hunting. I pray it works out well for you. I, uh, I had to go to a different school. Maybe you want to give that a shot, but uh, there wasn't much in New Orleans, so I came up here. Um, Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to try, I'm going to try in the time I have to, to cover the entire chapter of Philippians 3. It's a very ambitious goal. I'll get you out on time, don't worry. I'm going to try to hit the high points of this incredible text that speaks to us about the glory of knowing Christ Jesus. So let me just read a few verses in the section and pause for a brief prayer and then we'll jump in. Philippians 3, let's start in verse 7, read down to verse 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Just a brief prayer. And Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. For the past 10 years, I've had the privilege of teaching in Ukraine. I've been, uh, I would go there every, every year uh, for about a week or so and, and teach church planters from the former Soviet Union. It's been one of the high points of my, my, uh, my ministry, actually, being there with these brothers who are in very tough situations. Uh, I've also had the privilege of taking people with me on these trips, and most recently I took uh, Ben Palka, a graduate from here who is from Buffalo. I thought he would relate well to Ukraine uh, as, a, as a cold, dark place as well, like Buffalo, and he would fit, fit right in. And so I took Ben with me, and he did fit right in. Uh, and we were, we were looking at my friend's map on the wall. Uh, his name's Joel. He's now a retired IMB missionary who started this church planting school. And he has a map on the wall that is dotted with the former church planters that have been sent out all over the former Soviet Union. And I told Ben as he was standing there, I said, hey, half of these guys are, are former drug dealers. And uh, he started laughing, and I said that because Ben is a former drug dealer. And uh, I, by the way, I think they make really good church planters. Uh, <laughs> emphasis on former, former drug dealers. They're, they're very savvy. They're streetwise. They know how to mix it up with real-life people. But anyway, that's another, it's another rant. And so I told Ben, hey, these are former drug dealers. And, and I said, for example, this guy Emmanuel, who's in Lithuania, I said, uh, he's got tattoos on every finger. He used to be in prison. And he told the class one time that the only time he used the Bible was to smoke it. 
He said, he said in prison that he would roll various products and put it in the Bible, tear pages out, and proceed to, to smoke it. And now he's preaching the Bible. How do you go from smoking the Bible to preaching the Bible? Well, no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace, God's transforming grace. And in Philippians 3, Paul is talking about the great transformation that has taken place in his life. He went from a terrorist to an evangelist. And he's not only talking about his own life, he's also in unpacking this theology of the gospel. Moises Silva in his excellent commentary on Philippians says that Philippians 3, 7 to 11 is, is the essence of Pauline theology. You really get justification, sanctification, and glorification in this little uh, section of scripture. He unpacks this beautiful, beautiful uh, theology of the gospel. Now this text is very important, this chapter is very important for a variety of reasons, but for just ministry leaders, this is a very important text for uh, several reasons. Let me just highlight a few of them. You see here that Paul is not just explaining Christianity, but he's also exemplifying it in Philippians 3. And that's what leadership is. Leadership is not lordship. Leadership is about following Jesus and inviting people to follow him with you. He's exemplifying and he's explaining. This is also an important text for ministry leaders because you see here that Paul is ministering out of a healthy soul. And you will always minister best out of a healthy soul. You don't minister best out of gifting or ability, but out of health. And if chapter 3, verse 10 is not happening in our souls, that our great longing is to know Christ and to behold him more and more, then it will affect ministry effectiveness. And speaking of that issue, this is one of the ways that you will make up for your deficiencies in ministry, your deficiency of gifting and ability. We all have deficiencies. And the question is, how do you make up for them? And I think one of the ways you make up for your weaknesses is by godliness. You may not be the greatest preacher in the world, but if you really are walking with Jesus, people will find you interesting, and they will be blessed by your ministry. Godliness makes up for our deficiencies. And by the way, it is very dangerous for a person's gifting to surpass their maturity. That's very dangerous, and it's quite possible. It's a very dangerous place to be. So we have to keep Jesus central in our hearts. We have to keep the gospel at the center of everything, and that's what you see Paul doing, and that's why he's a wonderful model for us uh, in this chapter. Now, what I'd like to show you in this text is really just two parts. In verses 2 to 11, Paul talks about the marks of true believers. And then in verses 12, down to the end of the chapter, he talks about the maturity of true believers. Now, if you've wandered in here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. This is a wonderful text for you as, we, as Paul talks about what it means to know Christ. But really, wherever you are on the spectrum, this is a wonderful chapter. Paul talks about what it is to, to know him and how do we press on to know him more and more and more. And so he, he begins with a little introduction in verse 1 when he says, finally, which doesn't mean much to Paul. Finally, like some of you guys when you preach. Uh, he's still got a few more. He's got a lot, of, lot more to say. But he's finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is a dominant theme in the, in the book of Philippians, this concept of joy. Now, here's a guy, Paul, who is in prison, and yet he is radiating a contagious joy. The happiest man in Rome is in jail. How does that happen? Well, his joy is not confined to his circumstances, is it? His rejoicing is in something. It's in the Lord. A lot of people today assume that what you need, today in America at least, it's, you need something bigger and better to have more joy. 
You need, you need a bigger church, you need bigger muscles, and you need bigger, you know, a bigger car, whatever. What you really need, as you look at the book of Philippians, is a bigger view of Jesus. When you have a great view of Jesus, you can rejoice in all sorts of circumstances. And you need a bigger view of grace, because you don't get joy when you get what you desire. You get joy when you realize what you deserve. When you realize what you deserve and what you have been given instead, then you can sing in prison. You can rejoice in all sorts of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's, you know, like a cheerleader doing spirit fingers all the time. This, this, this guy, he grieved, and yet he would write things like in 2 Corinthians as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There is a joy that's underneath all of our sorrow. There is a happiness, there is a delight in God that, that, that is, is, is at the bottom of our, of, of, of our soul that enables us to experience hard times. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. And then he proceeds to write something else very important in verse one when he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love this. Paul says, I'm saying the same thing I taught you when I was in Philippi 10 years ago. The same thing that I taught you was the gospel. And I'm gonna tell you the same thing again. This is very instructive for us, isn't it? This is in many ways what preaching is. It's telling people the same thing. We're like the eagles. We got one song and we just keep touring on this one song. We just, we just keep banging the gospel song until we see Jesus. And he says, it's no trouble for me to keep telling you this. In fact, I enjoy telling you this. And, and realize there are a million implications of the same things, these, these essential truths. But this is what we're doing. We, we, are, we are unpacking for people the same things related to the gospel. Every church should be a same things church. A same things church. I think that would be a great name for a church plan, don't you? We're same things church. And, and why is it in this case that Paul is saying that he wants to keep teaching the same things? Well, he says, because it's safe for you. It's safe. So in other words, the gospel is a safeguard against heresy. The more people understand the true gospel, the better they can detect false gospels. And he's going to proceed to tell us in verse 2 that there are false teachers that he calls dogs that are chewing up the gospel, distorting the gospel. And so he says, I want to keep telling you what the real gospel is. And that's really very, very important for ministry, that we just continue to teach people the same things because we love them. It's safe for them. We want them to understand it. And we want them to live out the implications of the gospel. It's not just we want them to know theology. We want them to have a biography. And your theology determines your biography. What you believe inevitably shapes how you live. That's why we, keep, we have to keep teaching the same things, because we want a life that glorifies God in our people. Well, that's just the introduction. Now he gets to the marks of true believers. He, he basically sets it up by saying we are the real circumcision. That is, we are the real people of God. We are real believers. He begins by saying, look out for those dogs. What a great verse. Look out for those Georgia dogs. They can't win a game. Look out for those, look out for those dogs. Now, dogs were, were not little chihuahuas. These were, you know, little schnauzers. They weren't pets in Paul's day. These were, these were they would just tear up stuff and they were nasty the Gentiles were called dogs, and now Paul flips it on the Judaizers, those who are insisting that you needed Jesus plus something else. And he says, no, they're the dogs. Dogs, these stray dogs go where they don't belong and they tear up stuff. And he's saying, watch out for these false teachers. Here's how you can detect 
the dogs. Who let the dogs out? He tells us in this, this verse that the evil one let the dogs out. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evil doers. They've been sent out by the evil one to destroy and corrupt. There are all kinds of dogs. That is, there are all kinds of false teachers. You have the prosperity dogs. You have other religions. You, you have all sorts of false teachers that are distorting things. And he says, be on guard for the dogs. Look out for those who, in this case, mutilate the flesh. That is a, a, his little reference to circumcision. Paul has to deal with this a lot in, in uh, the epistles, doesn't he? You can read about some of that discussion in Acts 15, where people are saying, unless a person is circumcision, they cannot be saved. And Paul would say over and over and over that it's not about uh, mutilation, it's about regeneration. It's not about external, it's about internal. Look out for those dogs, those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision. And now he gives us the marks, if you want to call it that, of the people of God, four of them. First, and they're very easy to see here, we worship by the Spirit of God. A true believer worships by the Spirit of God. Now understand, worship here is not in a sense of um, music and in a building and so on, but rather like Romans 12, in, in service. We, we serve, we worship, that is, today you will write papers, you will work, you will talk to people, you do it all, hopefully, in submission to the Spirit, walking by the Spirit as an act of worship to God. Paul says that a Christian in Romans 8 is one who has the Spirit. He who, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And so then he says that the that real people of God have the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. We pastor by the Spirit. We parent by the Spirit. We president by the Spirit. We do all of our work, hopefully, in submission to the work of the Spirit. Second mark here, he says, a Christian not only has the Spirit of God, but a Christian glories in Christ Jesus. Now this is quite obvious, hopefully, that, that a Christian is one who makes much of Christ. Like in every aspect of life, we're always boasting in Christ. Should God ever give you a platform, boast in Christ. Speak of Christ. You know, all of life is, may I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A Christian glories in Christ. A Christian worships by the Spirit. Thirdly, a Christian puts confidence in Christ, not in the flesh. Confidence in Christ. Now, he unpacks this for a bit when he says, I put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And now he begins to go on this whole, basically his former resume of things he used to put confidence in. This is a very important question for everybody as we witness to people, like where is your confidence when it comes to eternal life? In what are you trusting? In whom are you trusting? And Paul says, this is where I used to put my confidence and to just sort of apply it. I've, I've, I've tried to state it in a, in a way that that we could think through our culture today. He says, I used to put my confidence first in ritual. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was an eighth dayer. I was not a Johnny come lately to the game. I was, I, I was, I was uh, an eighth day Hebrew. I, I had this mark of circumcision, this, this ritual. And today we'll have people who would assume that they're, they, they put their confidence in baptism or something that they have done as a child or saying Jesus take the wheel or something that in which they're putting their confidence. And Paul says it's not about a ritual. 
Secondly, he says it's not about race. He says, I was of the people of Israel, literally the, the race of Israel. But as we read through the book of Acts, we know that God shows no partiality, that God is saving a people from every tribe and tongue. We better not put our confidence in our race. Thirdly, we don't put our confidence in our rank. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the great tribe. I was not, he says, part of some disrespected tribe of Israel. I was part of the honored tribe of Israel. And we have a temptation perhaps to think because someone has a name or they're athletic or they've got a particular set of, or they're wealthy or whatever, that God somehow grades on a curve. And Paul says, no, we, I used to put my confidence in my rank. Next, he says, I used to put my confidence in my tradition. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Fifthly, he says, I used to put my confidence in my morality. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I made up laws. Right? I made up so many laws, I didn't know where the law, the real law really was. And a lot of people today are putting their confidence in their morality. And morality can keep you out of jail, but not hell. We're not, a, we're not for immorality. We're just saying morality is insufficient. Now, a lot of people today assume that they're somewhere between Ted Bundy and Mother Teresa. And if they can just find somebody that they're better than, then they're okay. No. No. They haven't begun to grasp the gospel. Sixthly, he says, I used to put my confidence in sincerity. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Now, we hear this a lot in culture. It doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere. And you can be sincerely wrong. If a guy picks up the football and he's running in the wrong end zone, toward the wrong end zone, he might be really sincere, but he's wrong. He's running the wrong way. We hear this a lot in culture, don't we? That you, it doesn't matter what you believe, just follow your heart. I like what Bill Murray, the comedian, said. He said, I followed my heart and it led me to the fridge. You don't want your heart. You don't want to follow your heart. Seventh, he says, I used to put my, my confidence in rule keeping. He says, as to righteousness under the law, uh, I was blameless. I was blameless. So this was, this was what I used to put my hope in. Now, what does Paul do? He pivots in verse 7, but... Whatever I used to think was important, I count it as loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, I love this, this phrase here, that Jesus is of surpassing worth. Like few things get better over time, but Jesus does. He is of surpassing worth. And he says that here, this is what it means to know Christ. This is where you put your confidence. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And notice also the shift here where Paul says, I counted it as loss. And then he says, I have suffered loss. He really did suffer loss. He was known before he was a believer. People loved him in the Jewish circles. They podcasted his, his, his synagogue messages. And now Paul traded his list of accomplishments for a list of achievements or a list of afflictions. And now his list included 39 lashes, shipwreck, beaten, and so on. I have suffered the loss of all things. And then he gets us to the gospel eventually as he says, I count them as rubbish. Great word, isn't it? Scubala. The translators are very timid with this word, by the way. I will not tell you how Bruce Ashford says we should translate it. But it's not rubbish. <laughs> it's not rubbish. It's what my chickens do in the backyard. That's, that's a better rendering here. I count them as, I like the King James, dung. 
All of my religious accomplishments are garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, how does a person know Christ Jesus? Verse 9, I'm found in him. There's nothing more important in the whole world than to be found in him. If you are found in Christ Jesus, you're safe. Judgment can't touch you. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I've been found in him. The Father looks at us today and says, this is my beloved son and daughter. With them I am well pleased because of the work of another. I've been found in him. How does this work? He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul here is unpacking for us, isn't he, the doctrine of justification, that that we need to be righteous. Only righteous people are going to heaven. And we've got a problem. There, there, There is none who are righteous. Therefore, we need an alien righteousness. We need an external righteousness. We need someone else's righteousness. If we could get that, that would be good. We need an imputed righteousness. What a great concept. You probably didn't use the word imputed this morning. You know, I imputed cream cheese onto my bagel. <laughs> but what does it mean? It means to apply something, to take from somewhere else and to put it, to, to apply it to, to something. And this is what's happened. Jesus Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It has been given to us. Notice it's a faith, it, or it's a gift. It comes from God that is received by faith. Imputed righteousness. That's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? Stott says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God, it is finished. To tell us die. We've been found in him. There there is no greater news in all the world than this. And that's why we have to send people to the nations. And that's why we have to plant churches in urban cities. Because people will believe something. The dogs are out. Who can go out and preach the real gospel? That's why we must send people. That's why we must send people. And that's why we must, as Luther said, beat it into the heads of our people every day. Because we are prone to forget this. We ourselves are prone to forget it personally. We are not righteous today because we're in seminary. We're not righteous today because we're in ministry. We're not righteous because we've written a book or reported that we read a book. You are righteous today because of the work of another. It's forensic. It's invisible. We've been declared justified. And it's true. And now Paul says, for this reason, I just want to know him. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's no greater privilege in all the world than to know Jesus. I have a friend named Rodney Richardson who is a designer. He's designed, he designed the New Orleans Pelicans logo, the Charlotte Hornets logo, Houston Texans, and a bunch of others. He's, he's quite famous now. He's from Mississippi. And Rodney was on a conference call about two years ago with Michael Jordan. And he had never talked to MJ before, and he's having this conversation. And, and all of a sudden he hears, hey, Rod, it's MJ. And Ronnie said, after I wet myself, I proceeded to, to go on to talk to this guy. He said, I cannot believe that Michael Jordan knows who I am. Well, that is pretty cool. But you're known by Christ, and you know him. You know his voice. He calls you by name. 
There's no greater privilege. There's no greater pleasure. There's no greater glory. And so Paul then, fourthly, the fourth mark, he says, not only do we worship by the Spirit of God, not only do we glory in Christ Jesus, not only do we put our confidence in Christ, not our works, but a real Christian wants to know Christ more and more. That's what a Christian does. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in the fellowship of his suffering. So the question is, what do you want today? I get to coach baseball here in Wake Forest. I was coaching uh, two summers ago, and the kid had his bat on his shoulder. And I go up to him, and I said, okay, Johnny, let me see your batting stance. And he didn't move. Come on, man, let me see your stance. And he says, I just want to be rich when I get old. (laughs) (laughs) At least he was honest, right? I appreciate the guy knows what he wants. You know, I just, I want no coaching. I want money, okay? (laughs) What is it that you want? And I just, I just wonder if we don't sort of present ourselves like that sometimes before the Father. What do you want? I, I hope we say, with Paul here, I want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I remember being in seminary. I had a great theology prof, Stan Norman. We called him Storm and Norman. And, and he, was, he was really amazing. He's a, he's a VP now at uh, Oklahoma Baptist. And me and several of my friends used to say that we worship, or we typed on our knees in Dr. Norman's class because it was really, it was a worship experience. And on one occasion, he was talking about the resurrection and he was dealing with some pretty serious implications of the resurrection. And Norman was a little bit sarcastic and he would call people out if they were not paying attention. And this one student was yawning as Dr. Norman was talking about the resurrection. And, and Norman uh, called him out. It was one of those days where you're glad you went to class he, he said, he said uh, I forget the guy's name, and uh, he's not important, and, and he said, you don't seem like this is very, this doesn't seem very important to you. I emailed, by the way, Dr. Norman to make sure I was telling the story right, and he told me the student's name and the whole deal, so um, <laughs> I won't say any more detail than I should here, but, but the student said to him, look, I didn't come here to study this stuff. All I want to know is how to pastor a big church. And he said that. And it, it, it was on. It was on. It was, <laughs> I, I don't remember everything that was, was said. Norman told me some details, but he, he told him, he said, son, you are here to know Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. I mean, do you think we should get a better ambition than Paul? I'd say we go with this one. And apparently you can pastor a big church and not have to worry about the resurrection. Some do, right? Nice light show. Can you tell me about Jesus? Well, I say we stick right here. J.I. Packer says, once you realize your main business in life is to know Christ, most of your problems will fall into place. Most of your problems will fall into place. And, and I, I concur. Now, we love the power of the resurrection. The, the same power that raised Jesus is in the believer. But the next phrase, it's hard to amen, isn't it? I want to share his sufferings. Now, how could Paul say that? I want to know his sufferings. Well, if knowing Christ is your goal and suffering helps you know Christ more, then welcome the suffering. Is Jesus really your goal? Do you really want more intimacy with him? That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. 
So here we have a beautiful picture, I think, of mar- the marks of true believers. The marks of true believers. Now, in the remaining minutes, and I'll just do it in minutes here, I just I think it's helpful. Most commentators take this text down to verse 16, but I don't want to leave 17 to 21 hanging either. So let me, let's talk about just for a second the maturity of believers, the maturity of true believers. In verse 12, Paul is continuing the conversation of knowing Christ. Kent Hughes in his commentary says that there is nothing like this explosion of spiritual longing in the New Testament. There's an explosion of spiritual longing. When he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is, this is spiritual longing. Now, I've been really helped by my friend CJ's uh, sermon on this text, his application of it, and so I, I, want, to, I want to recognize that. Um, let me just, let me note a few comments, just to make a few comments here about maturity, uh, maybe five of them, okay, maybe five of them. What does it, how does a person grow in Christ-likeness? I think this text helps us. First of all, the text tells us to humbly acknowledge that we haven't arrived. Humbly acknowledged that you haven't arrived. Paul has two negatives here. He starts off with a negative. Not that I've obtained this. That is perfect knowledge of Christ and perfect conformity to Christ. Not that I've obtained it. And verse 13 is another negative. I do not consider that I've made it my own. Paul is recognizing he hasn't arrived yet. It takes humility. The gospel has humbled Paul. And by the way, when, when, when you realize you haven't arrived, you'll be patient with other people. You'll look at other people differently. I can't tell you how many people I know that have given up on discipleship relationships because the other person isn't progressing fast enough. Let's, let's be really careful. Let's humbly acknowledge that we haven't arrived. Our whole lives, we should be learning. We should be growing. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, says, bring me the books. Now, Paul, haven't you read enough books? Well, you still want to learn more? Yeah. Humbly acknowledge that you haven't arrived. I got a message from uh, C.J. Mahaney two years ago. I was listening to a sermon he was doing, and I just sent him a note and said, hey, man, thank you for this sermon. It was so impactful to me. And he wrote me back this long message, as C.J. does often. And he says, "Um, hey, pal, I'm so humbled that you would listen to my preaching. And on and on and on. He says, you're a preaching professor. I would pay you money if you would evaluate my preaching and give me feedback on my preaching. I'm like, okay. So, (laughs) no, I didn't say that. I was, I was looking at this message like, oh, are you serious? This guy's in his 60s. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. He's still wanting to improve. I showed it to our elders, and they said, he sounds like a 20-year-old. He sounds like a 20-year-old. Yeah, he sounds like Paul. I haven't obtained it. I haven't arrived. There's still a whole lot more for me to learn and for me to know. The second thing here, passionately pursue a greater knowledge of the Savior. It's easy probably for us to admit we haven't arrived, but some people use that as an excuse not to press on with passion. Don't do that. That's a mistake. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul's not coasting. He's not saying, I haven't arrived. Eh, you know. Mm-mm. Notice this language. This is exertion. Paul uses athletic language elsewhere. When he says, I'm forgetting and straining. I'm forgetting what lies behind, which includes both failures and accomplishments. 
Like, obviously, we've we got to deal with failures in the past if we haven't, uh, you know, resolved them and so on. But, but we understand that the idea of forgetting the failures. But the thing I think that's impressive with Paul is that he's even forgetting accomplishments. There are a lot of Christians who live like Uncle Rico in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. He's still living in the glory days. He's got his van camper, and he's, he's filming himself, thinking he'd like to be a quarterback. It's like, you need to move on. Okay, we, we, we cannot live like that. We forget, we run. We forget as we run. And we got one thing in mind. Do you notice that wonderful little phrase there? This one thing I do. Paul is a one thing man. He is a one thing man. CJ asked the question, what one change can you make in order to pursue the one thing that matters the most? What one change can you make in order to pursue the one thing, Christ, who matters the most? And if you need some help, just think about time, money, study. What one, one thing can you change? Uh, I think sometimes we think about change in terms of boxes. I need to change this, this, and this. But David Pallison is very helpful when he talks about one change in one area affects your whole life. What is one change you can make in order to pursue the one thing that matters the most? So he humbly admits he hasn't arrived. He's passionately pursuing a greater knowledge of the Savior. Thirdly, never lose the wonder of the gospel. He says, the reason I'm pressing on is because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Like, this is why we want to press on, and this is how we press on. We want to, and we can, because Christ Jesus has made me his own, Paul says. That's, this is a guy who's never getting over the gospel. How did this happen? It happened through a calling, through the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So never get beyond that. Fourth, let me move quickly. This is a very important theme, starting in verse 15. Follow cross-bearing disciples. Cross-bearing disciples. Imitation's a big theme in Philippians. Imitate Jesus, imitate Epaphroditus, Timothy, imitate Paul here, and others. Paul wants this young congregation to have good examples in front of them. And so he says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So think about those who are mature. Look at their lives. You have a lot of them in, in this, on this campus. You don't, don't imitate their looks, imitate their life. Okay? You can't be the greater Denzel Washington like Walter Strickland, but imitate his, his humility, his love for his church. You can't look like Nick Saban, like Dr. Shaddix, but you can imitate his, his prayer life. You, you can't have a little starter beard at age 38 like Bruce Ashford, but, but you can imitate his, his, uh, his, his work ethic, and I could, I could have a lot of fun with all this. You certainly can never imitate Steve Ecker and his look. You can only experience it, okay? But you... You should look at his love for the church. Imitate that. You need really good models. Who you hang with matters. Who you watch matters. And I would even say, I would include in that dead mentors as well. Let me just read you George Mueller, since this theme of happiness is so important in, in Philippians. George Mueller, a very eccentric pastor uh, in Bristol in the 1800s. It was said that uh, 50 years after Mueller began his ministry that 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. Thousands of children came to his funeral. This is what Mueller said his secret was. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The more we know of God, the happier we are. 
What will make us so exceedingly happy in heaven? It will be the fuller knowledge of God. And then he says this at age 71. Now in brotherly love and affection, I would give you a few hints to my younger fellow believers as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. Especially we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we remain spiritual dwarfs. I tell you so affectionately. For the first four years after my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my heart and soul, I directly made progress. Then my peace and joy continued more and more. Now I have been doing this for 47 years. I've read through the whole Bible about a hundred times and I always find it fresh when I begin again. Thus my peace and joy have increased more and more. That was a man who was pressing on. Well, the last thing to mention, I'm out of time here. Live in light of your true citizenship. Live in light of your true citizenship. He contrasts the good examples with the negative examples in verse 17 and 18, those who are following after the lust of the flesh, who are uh, going after the God of their belly, glorying in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. Then he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to this church in Philippi, and he's saying the church is a little outpost of the kingdom. It's a little embassy of the kingdom. And when people visit your congregation, they ought to say, you guys aren't from around here, are you? The way you care for people, the way you talk to people, the values you have, where are you from? Well, our citizenship is in heaven. And our Lord, the Lord of, the, of heaven, is coming. He says in verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I love that phrase. It doesn't matter how buff you are, your category is lowly. Your body is a lowly body. I love the Greek here. Soma taponosios. That's what your body is. Lowly body. That's why my back is hurting right now. Right? That's why we can't sleep and our digestive system doesn't work right because we have soma taponosios. We have a lowly body. And this is what we're waiting on. We're waiting on the day in which Jesus comes back and by his power, he's going to transform our bodies. And how's he going to do it? By the power that is in him to subject all things to himself. If he can transform all things, he can transform our bodies. And so Paul says, live in light of this. Live as if you're not home yet. And we'll grow in maturity. So let us pursue the Savior. Let's grow in the Savior. Let's point other people to the Savior until we see the Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you keep us centered on on the gospel. I pray that we would never think we have somehow arrived, but you would help us to forget and to press on until we see Christ and we're transformed. I pray you would do that in our lives on this earth as you sanctify us from one degree of glory to another. Guard us from pride, guard us from the evil one. Make us more and more like Christ. Help us to be faithful to preach the same things, the gospel, to people in fresh ways. Or that may we may protect them in order that your church may export the true gospel, not a deficient gospel. Raise up missionaries, church planners, pastors from among us here today. You would help them plant a church like Paul did in Philippi and pastor them and shepherd them. And Father, we thank you. We can never thank you enough. Help us to realize what we deserved and what we've been given instead.
and give us this, this contagious joy that we see in Paul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.